Hello, this is Derek Duncan. Thank you for listening and for downloading the Feed the Ball podcast. This is episode 62, featuring my guest, Drew Rogers. Drew Rogers broke into the golf design business directly after earning a landscape architecture degree from the University of Kentucky, landing a plum job with the Toledo-based firm of Arthur Hills in 1992. He worked his way up the firm's ladder through the 1990s, and by the 2000s, Rogers was leading design projects for Hills both across the U.S. and in Europe. When course construction slowed and eventually ground to a halt heading into the 2009 recession, and when all large firms like Hills dramatically downsized, Rogers left to set up his own shop. In many ways, Rogers represented what turned out to be the last of a certain type of architect, and what seems to be an almost historical curiosity in today's decentralized design world that of the in-house associate in a large corporate golf development house. However, like past Feed the Ball guests Matt Dusenberry and Thad Layton, who also began their careers as associates at major design practices, Rogers found the experience and expertise he gained with Hills and Steve Forrest invaluable, and over the last decade, he's been able to apply that advanced technical and operational knowledge to his own individual views of design. Most of Rogers' work is happening in the renovation and remodeling of existing clubs, He's been noticeably busy in Florida, where he's returned to renovate a number of clubs originally built by the Hills Company. His recent transformation of Miramar Lakes Golf Club near Fort Myers, where he fashioned a number of C.B. McDonald-inspired holes, including Redan and a full Beeritz Green, is especially striking. He's also full go in the upper Midwest, consulting with and restoring courses designed by Donald Ross, Langford and Moreau, Charles Allison and Willie Park Jr., One of his most high-profile associations to date has been his ongoing restoration of Old Elm Club in Chicago. Old Elm's lineage is one of the most unique in the United States. The original plans for the course were drafted by Harry Colt in 1913 on one of his only two visits to North America. As per custom, Colt did not oversee construction and instead turned the plans and subsequent build over to Donald Ross, who mostly carried out the intended vision, but also added a few variations of his own. Roger's own work clearing trees, recapturing lost width, and restoring the Colt Ross Bunker aesthetic has helped revive the enshrined brilliance of these two Golden Age greats. Drew and I discussed Old Elm and much more, including the legacy of Hills and other prominent design firms of the housing development decades. Now, after our conversation, I'm especially excited to see where Drew goes and what kind of opportunities he gets over the next five and ten years. Not only is he incredibly steeped in both historic and modern architecture, He also offers candid assessments and is one of the most personable, pleasant people I've spoken to. I think I found a friend. So now, along with me, please welcome into your hearts, Drew Rogers. It's been a really busy year and still trying to sneak in a few meetings before the end of the year. So next week I'll be headed to Chicago and uh, try and button some things up and also open some doors. So it's still still a busy week for me to the bitter end. Well, good for you. You're not going to rest on your laurels. I know you got to be out there hustling all the time. It's a you got to keep the keep the work coming in and keep your face out there and keep keep yeah. those phones ringing. Yeah, that's the reality of it. And and every year is a new year. So, um, uh, you know, it's kind of the way 
contractors or golf course builders have to work. I mean, it, there there are no givens. Uh, you've got to go out there and get it, and and you've got to be present and in front of the right people at the right time. And you know, our work is no different. It, the the days of the phone ringing uh, and, and people asking you to be you know be their guy uh those kind of fell by the wayside uh, a good good while back so we've got to work hard at it yeah i think everybody everybody has to and it's it's always that's always the strange thing about about your business is is you're you're planning out so far into the future you know only certain jobs are going to come through you don't you don't always know when a project's going to get started you don't want to take on too much work cuz if they all hit at the same time and i was talking to somebody the other day and uh, they were telling me that this is like the first year in in ages that like Bill Core doesn't have anything going on in the U.S. right now. You know, and it's just so if if, wow. if somebody like him, you know, kind of gets <laughs> caught in these these uh, these troughs or whatever, like you know, it's the same for everybody. It really is, um, and I know there's a lot of work out there. There's a lot of opportunities, and you know, given that most of it is is uh, renovation based work. Um, I mean, those, those aren't big paydays. I mean, and, and a lot of those projects, you know, they're spanned out over uh, an extended period of time. As you related, you know, they might, might stop and go. They might do a little bit here and ramp it up slowly. Or they may, you know, go really hard and, and, and do a lot right out of the gate. But you don't know that necessarily coming, um, you know, coming into the picture. So, you've got to pursue them all with a lot of vigor and hopefully you get the right balance, but you know, too much work is bad and not enough work is bad. So, um, you know, but you got to go after them and, and you got to pursue them. And, and so there's, there's a lot going on right now. And that's why you're working through Christmas essentially. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. And glad to be, I guess. On this topic, I wanted to kind of start off asking you about, social media. I think that's one of the, the ways that, that somebody like me can become more familiar with your work is, is I follow you on Instagram and I've seen a, a number of your projects over the last year. Um, I'll just start off by asking, does that come natural for you? I mean, I think you're of that age similar to me where, it, you know, social media is not, uh, you know, it's, it's not an innate ability. I kind of have to work at it and think hard. How has that experience been for you using that? Yeah, I'm right there with you. Um, it, you know, it was something I kind of um, uh, became acquainted with very slowly, more out of necessity. It, you know, I, I kind of rejected it in the very beginning, just thinking, you know, I don't have time for this, and who, who am I really connecting with? But you know, af- after a number of years here of you know, you know, doing posts on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and, and realizing that, you know, a lot of people do follow and they are interested in what you're doing, what you're saying. I, I think you have to be there. I think you have to be uh, connected in this way. It, it's just where we are as a society today. And certainly within the golf industry, I've found it absolutely amazing the the following that you can um you can connect with you know on twitter especially so many golf course superintendents use that platform uh to communicate and you know i we work directly with golf course superintendents in many many ways and and that is a, a great entree to uh 
you know, connecting with superintendents and finding out what what kinds of challenges that they're facing, what kinds of needs they have, and, and really getting in tune with all that. And and I, I'm not going to kid you. There's been um, opportunities that have resulted from you know the connections made on social media. It's entirely a business tool to me. That's the way I use this platform. It, it's not. It's not a social thing for me. It's it's strictly business, and and I even work really hard to to um, relieve opinion from the posts that I make. You know, I, I just try and put it out there. This is what we're working on. This is what it is, and that that either appeals or it doesn't, or you know, inspires someone to reply or make a comment, and that's all fine. But I'm typically not going to engage in any kind of back and forth that, you know, gets involved with too much opinion. I just don't have time. Uh, I guess that's the first thing. And that's really not the the platform I want to use to, uh, you, you know, engage in opinion or debate or anything like that. Although some people use it that way and that's fine. I'm just not one of them. Yeah. Have you had any negative experiences? Has, has anybody come at you or left a, left a snarky comment? Oh, sure. Sure. People say, you know, off, off the cuff things that you're like, wow, you know, did you really think about what you just said? Um, and, and I think the answer is no, almost always. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, you know, especially on Twitter, I mean, so many people are in rapid fire mode and that's really dangerous because you haven't thought things through clearly before you post, you know, you just do it immediately. You know, we, we, we see all these, um, uh, professional athletes that, that comment. So, you know, without control mm-hmm. and they do it almost immediately, uh, upon something happening or an event or an issue. And, you know, if they just step back and let it simmer, you know, let everybody say their piece and then come forth with a uh, with, with a clear, concise idea or thought. It'd be so much better. And um, but, you know, that's that's what it is. It's not going to change. So uh, I just try and steer clear of all that. Yeah, well, that's smart. The nature of the platform, especially Twitter, is it, it encourages people or, or drives them to want to be the first in with a comment or, you know, it, it breeds a, a desire to be first, you know, to be hasty. And, and right. that's where you get in trouble. And I'm, I'm guilty <laughs> of it, too. Sometimes I'll see somebody a post on Twitter. And I mean, we all have first impressions and something will leap to my head and I want to respond to it. And then I'll you know, check myself. And usually I don't respond at all after that, which is good. So that's some level of unexpected maturity on my end. I'm not sure where it comes from. Maybe getting hey, smoked I'm a few right too many times. You. I, I, I feel the same way. And, and there are times where I, I want to take the bait and I want to fire back or, or clarify something. And I think, you know, just let it go. Just, yeah. it's all right. We don't want to, we don't want to go there. It's okay so. to let it go. That's right. That's right. Well, Instagram's a little different. It's a little more, you know, it's photo driven. There's not a lot of as much commentary on it. It's not as reactive. It's a great way. I mean, think about the old days. And and I know you're familiar with this. And it's why you you use Instagram is throughout most of history, you would work on a golf course for two years or however long it took. And then all of a sudden, when it opened, 
that's where the photographs would show up and the photographers would come. And if you were lucky to get access to, to major media, you could spread visual images of the golf course through magazines or, or, or whatever. And now right. you don't have to wait. You can post pictures of holes under construction or sites that are undeveloped and you can take your followers or whoever else is watching along with you on the journey in a visual sense that wasn't possible before. And that's a really powerful thing. That's, that's how you can tell a story about a golf course and, and show, and then showing the finished product direct, you know, sending that directly in, in, onto people's phones or computers instead of having them wait for them to pick up a magazine or, or, or go on to the, the course's website. Uh, and that's, that's incredibly powerful. In fact, one of the things that struck me is, is uh, looking at the photos of Miramar Lakes you and your team went kind of with this old, the old um, Rain or C.B. McDonald look. And, and I wouldn't have, you know, been aware of that golf course if I hadn't been following you on Instagram and seeing the hole shapes. Right. Um, maybe you can maybe we can use this segue to talk about that project because it's, it's very interesting. And uh, I'm sure that that must have been pretty enjoyable for you to kind of recreate those those historic shapes that are, are more familiar to the, you know, those golden age vintage right. courses. That was a lot of fun. Um, and, and I have to tip my hat to the client. Um, Ken McMaster is the director of golf and, and, uh, manager at, uh, Miramar lakes and has been there for quite some time. And, you know, Ken is just a, a really dynamic fellow, um, really knows his golf courses, uh, is really inspired by golden age work and, and, and folks like Rainer and, and McDonald's. And, um, you know, I, I think when we started our discussions, uh, it was very clear to me that he, he wanted some of these strong lines and forms to be, you know, part of who Miramar Lakes could be. And the more we got into it, we said, well, why not? why not? Let's give this place a whole new identity. Let's go for it. And, you know, he was a lot of fun to work with and still is. Uh, we're, we're kind of, uh, on the heat or on the, uh, the toes of the second phase of that work. Um, although we've got all the green complexes done and most of the T complexes, a lot of fairway work and, and everything is, is not yet integrated. So, um, but I, I'm really happy with what we've been able to achieve there. And, and I know Ken's ultimately very excited. We had a great contractor, super shaper, um, that worked very closely with us to deliver the lines and the forms that we wanted. It was just a lot of fun. Was that Ron Hart, the shaper? Ron Hart was a shaper and, um, gosh, I, I love the guy. It, you know, he was just so into what we were doing. Um, you know, when I would show up on site two or three days a week, you know, I'm out there with him and he's just so into the architecture and, and really trying to take our concepts another step further. And that's, that's what's so great when, when you get a good team, uh, out on the ground is you, you can continue to, you know, work from the concept and, and make it even better. And we certainly had the ability to do that with, with Ken and with, with Ron and, and Juan Tornado with TDI. Um, th they were just great to work with and, and, you know, the results show. Had Ron ever executed shapes similar to that before, or was it a new experience for him to try to, you know, do the Rainer McDonald look? 
No, I think he's done he's done similar work uh, for other architects, but that was the first time that he and I had engaged that way. Uh huh. Um, have you worked in that medium before? Uh, a little bit, a little bit. Yeah, I've I've done a few Barit screens here and there. Yeah. Uh, although they're my sort of uh, tweaked interpretation. You know, the the one we did at Miramar was was uh, an all out. Uh, concept mm -hmm. for for a red screen. I mean, it, it was pretty clean and clear what you're looking at there. But I've done some some uh, one offs here and there that are sort of Baritz inspired, and you know, trying to blend in the concept into whatever it was we were doing and whatever kind of site we were part of. So, working with working in that medium with those template holes is is kind of to me it's it it's a, a mixed blessing in a way. It's yeah. On one hand, they're they're show stopping pieces. If you can pull it off and you get you get the right dimensions to to a Beeritz or or a you know a punch bowl or, or a Redan or something, and and, you, and everything works right. I mean, it's it's probably really successful for the client as well because because you want a golf course to have uh, some sort of identity or, or moments that that really take your breath away. On the other hand. You're, you're making you know you're just using like somebody else's ideas old tropes they're 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 very common and you know there i guess there's maybe the the danger that that uh, a template hole concept can be overused you know if it's not an original you know rainer mcdonald course for instance you know you're you're kind of just peddling in in old ideas and and there's a danger to right. that if you if you can't make it work is do you do you approach it with the same same sense of trepidation a little bit yeah Derek, I mean, we know the concepts have been sound. They're proven. They're enduring. Um, they provided a whole lot of enjoyment to a lot of golfers uh, over, uh, you know, nearly 100 years so yeah. or, or more. Uh, so they're very proven concepts. But I, what I get a kick out of is being able to take a concept that is so identifiable and then integrating it into a site or a, a a design in a way that is not so recognizable but when you dig a little deeper you realize oh my gosh this this really is uh um, you know a takeoff of a of a redan or 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 an alps or whatever uh whatever the template might be I, you know i kind of get a kick out of that you know where it's not in your face and yeah. not so so um I guess architectural in appearance, uh, so identifiable. Uh, but when we can kind of sneak in the concept and it's a little bit less direct or a little more subtle, that that's kind of cool to do. Um, and you know, architects are, yeah, we're we're guilty of following um, in in our in our past a little bit. There's there's been so many golf holes that have been built. With so many identifiable concepts, you know, it's very difficult to to be completely innovative. And um, so you, you get inspired by things that you've seen, and you, you try and tweak them. You try and adapt them. You, you try and take it in, in a slightly different uh, approach, one direction or another. And and hopefully that um, you know the the whole will endure and you know, provide the kind of experience that, that was intended. Mm -hmm. I can see how that might be a really uh, a kind of a precious thing to, to design a hole that's based on a classic concept, but is it's not overt, it's not in your face and, or obvious. And then you can sit back and listen to the comments of 
players who come through and, and see how many of them kind of pick up on, on these the little eggs that you've, you've hidden out there. Right. Right. No, it, it's fun. It's fun. And then the odd opportunity here or there to do something very direct and very distinctive. And, uh, we do that too from time to time. So it, it's fun. It also works well on, I, I think it works well on sites like, like Miramar and when you're in South Florida and, you know, when you don't have a lot of natural gifts in the land, you know, there's not a lot of elevation change and it, it, the sites like that often really demand or, or call for a bold style of architecture to build up on the, on the ground and it kind of create dimension. And those, those old, you know, template holds have that, they have that, that vertical quality, that pronounced, uh, shadowy, uh, top line quality that that works well on a, on a piece of ground like that you're absolutely right and florida is a challenge just in the way that you you described um and what was part of uh what inspired us at miramar lakes i mean we were having our discussions early on about how to give the place identity how, how we make these golf holes stand out and be more memorable more defining um, strategically and visually and you know th- those kinds of lines and that sort of architectural treatment really lends itself to you know a, a high contrast which is really tough to achieve in mm-hmm. in south florida um, as you mentioned i mean the, the the sites that we typically work on down there they're they're largely void of of any uh, distinguishable terrain you might have a, a three or four foot elevation change across an entire site. Um, you know, all the relief that we do create, it's, it's gotta be excavated from lakes and those lakes, um, you know, that they serve as your, uh, stormwater retention. And, um, you know, they take that dirt and they build the lots and the roads that are part of the development as, as well as the golf course. And, you know, it, it starts to get into this repetitive pattern of this is the way we build a golf course in Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh, unless you're really blessed with a, uh, a very distinctive piece of ground, a sandy piece of ground with a lot of scrub and great vegetation that, you know, you don't have to integrate into a real estate product. Uh, if it's standalone, you can do a lot more things. But, you know, when you're dealing with a uh, a development envelope, you know, a, a single corridor for, for a golf hole and, and you've got to deal with roads and, and, uh, and, and lots and real estate and all that. I mean, your, your hand is, is really forced. You've got to be creative in a completely different way. I'd like to come back to that a little bit later when we talk about your work with, with Art Hills for all those years, but Touching back on the the uh, social media and Instagram topic one more time, one last thing there. In the last podcast I did with Jim Urbina, he posed the question: You know, is what is the effect of of everybody having a camera in their pocket and, and taking pictures, and especially architects who take pictures of their work and they post it on social media and they get instant feedback? And and he he was wondering: Is there a is there a downsized side to that in that? it becomes almost a game of one-upsmanship or it could, I, I don't think there's any evidence of it right now, but, but that's the concern is, is that maybe there uh, you get an almost like an arms race or, or a, a race to outdo somebody else based on like what your the, the photographs that you're posting, you know, the, the cool bunker shapes and the edging or the green contours or catching it in a certain light, you know, there's a, it has a powerful effect. Uh, you're an architect. I mean, I don't, I think, 
you're probably immune from that because you didn't come up with a, a, a camera phone in your pocket. It, it's a new technology like it is for me. But do you, do you see spot. where Jim's going with that? Does that um, resonate with you on, on any level? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I, I, it's how you use the camera, though. And, and I use it to collect information for myself, you know, it, or, or to document work that, that I have ongoing. So I, I don't know. I, I can't speak to Jim's exact um, feeling here, but, you know, I, I use the camera as a tool. I, I, I document, I collect, um, because I'm inspired every day. All the work that I do, it, it's, it's, it's in one form or another, is inspired by what I see. And it doesn't have to be an entire hole or an entire golf course. It can be, you know, a very specific feature or, or a treatment. And I like to capture those and, you know, bring them with me. Uh, because somewhere along the line, I've, um, having seen the, the, uh, the, the feature, I've got a feeling, an innate feeling that, hey, I, I'm going to make use of that. I'm going to apply that this or or that or here or there in some way shape or form in the future and this will help help me in that that endeavor so um plus i i like to be able to you know show some of these things that i see with other people sometimes you get a a a reaction uh, like hey that's really cool that's really beautiful i mean i i take pictures of of works of other architects, uh, fellows that I work, uh, um, you know, compete against. And, and I'm very glad to say, Hey, you did awesome work here. Yeah. Uh, everybody ought to go out and see this. This is significant. This is well done. Um, pat, pat those guys on the back. Uh, they're doing great work. I like to be able to, you know, say things like that as well. You started working with Arthur Hills in the early 90s, and you uh, got a degree in landscape architecture. I always think back of this this era, and it's a very interesting era in architectural history. It's pre, it's kind of pre-information, and, and I was wondering, like, what if you could tell me what was your what was your relationship to golf course architecture when you were in college? What did you know about it? And uh, what I'm getting at is there wasn't a lot of information available, not like there is now. No. You know, you, you got you you could read a book, you know, some books like Golf Digests, you know, the greatest courses in America or the whatever you know places to play before you die or something like that. But it's very yeah, it's your coffee table books more than anything. So what did you know about golf course architecture leading up to your employment with Arthur Hills? Well, that is such a great question because you hit it right on the head. You know, I, I came up uh, playing a lot of golf in my youth from a small town in the Midwest, really didn't have any exposure to architecture as we know it today. I just played golf. I, I was a decent player, and I, I was very interested in golf courses, and I kind of figured it out when I was planning for, you know, going away for college. I'm sitting down with my mom, and my mom says, you know, you could design golf courses. And I said, really? That, <laughs> how cool? You know, I've, I've kind of designed them in the backyard and, 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 you know, fiddled around with it. But I didn't really fathom that someone could make a career of it. So I kind of dug in a little bit and, 
um, I remember one year for Christmas, I got like three or four books from my parents. And it was the book that you mentioned, The 100 Greatest Golf Courses from Golf Digest, Golf Architecture in, the, in America by Thomas, uh, Golf Architecture by McKenzie, and then Driving the Green by John Strong. Yeah. And those four books were like the only books that I, I had for a long time. And I just soaked them up, you know, and, and got all that I could out of them. And then that, that transcended into picking up Robert Hunter's The Links, you know, and then I dug into that. And, and from there, I was hooked and I was gone. You know, I, it, it really took off. And, and it wasn't until really that I, I, I got hired by Art Hills and, and just got crazy about what I was doing and got so thirsty for information that, you know, the timing of a lot of uh, uh, book releases came out and a lot more information started becoming available. And now I'm, I'm sitting in my office here. I'm looking at those four or five books up on, on my bookshelves that have been there from the beginning. Mm -hmm. But now I've literally got hundreds of books on the topic of architecture and golf courses right here in front of me. And, you know, it's just been this collection that's developed over time. But I don't recall that information being readily available when I was you know, get, getting involved in, in the business. It's, it's really been uh, um, spawned along in the last 20 years, like you've said. Yeah. And that Thomas book's amazing. worth a lot of money now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of these books that we picked up, you know, uh, when they first came out. And, you know, they're worth quite a bit now. Um, but I enjoy them, and, and they're, they're gold to me. And I refer to them often, and... Um, uh, you know, so glad that, that the profession has grown the way it has and the interest has grown along with it to make all this information available. I think that explains a lot of, of what happened in American architecture in the seventies and eighties and into the nineties, even, uh, sort of a, a homogenization of, of design ideas. And, you know, there's a whole, a lot of other, you know, factors involved, the housing development courses and things like that. But without access to a lot of data in, in club histories and, and knowledge of, of what happened in the early part of the 20th century, that focuses most of the golf media attention on what's what's new. Since you don't have any yeah. anything historical to really look back to, there's not enough meat there that you can dig into. And at this time, also, when you're getting started there, you know, the United States, we're opening 150, 200 courses a year. And so the everything is really focused on the new and the fresh and, and what's better and, and what's new and what's next instead of looking backwards. So that's, that's the environment that, that you came into this profession with. And it's, it's just so interesting to think now how it's really the opposite. Now, hardly any new courses are opening. You have access to all kinds of historical information. It's almost, it's almost inverted. There's more, there's more information out there now. And we have more people digging into the, into newspaper articles and club histories than, right, you know, there's right. almost no focus on the new unless it's some, you know, destinate great destination course. So that, so it's interesting to think like, you know, you, you work with one of the notable courses you work with now is old Elm in Chicago. If you would have been hired by them in 1992 to do similar work, I'm not sure what you, you could have, used 
you know, to model your work after. Maybe that maybe that club particularly you could have gone into their archives, but they might not even have known what were in the old boxes in the attic or the basement. Uh, and now you walk into that place and you have you know the information that you need to do an outstanding job is readily available. You have so much to work with, so much that you can pull from. It's 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 just a, a kind of a fascinating inversion of of where we were even thirty years ago. Right. No, you're so right. Um, when I came into the business, like you suggest, uh, yeah, we were thirsty for that, that, uh, issue of golf digest that would come out early in the year and, and profile the best new golf courses of the year. I mean, that was everything you wanted to be on that list. You wanted to see that list. You wanted to measure yourself against that list. Mm -hmm. Certainly your clients were, and, that was that was a huge focus and now here we are you know almost 30 years along uh from from that point and that just doesn't inspire very many people anymore i mean i'm sure there are those that certainly want to be ranked or rated and they talk about golf courses in the sense that they're you know this number or that number and, and whatever with all that, um, you can take it or leave it, but there's so much more substance in the way that we look at our work now. And, you know, we didn't restore golf courses then, not, not in the way that we look at them now that once we've identified that, oh my gosh, there was, there, there was uh, terrific substance to a golf course that was, that was once here and now it is eroded or it's changed. It's been modified over time. Gosh, wouldn't it be great? I mean, to, to go back and dig up what was there originally and, you know, Willie Park jr. Did this golf course. Did mm -hmm. anybody know that? Oh my gosh. Well, you know, it just makes you thirsty to find out, you know, why is it that it's changed and, and, what was there before? Is it even possible to know what was there before and what inspired him? You know, it, it, it's, it's one of the first questions we ask now when we go to, a, uh, to, to meet with a potential new client is, you know, how much information do you have? What can we find? Can, what can we get our, our hands on? Because I think it's compelling to, to know where you've been before you go forward. Uh, I think we owe it to ourselves to, to do that work. And, and to understand the evolution of the golf course. Well, to, let's use Old Elm as an example. Then, what was what information did they have when you started working there in 2010? And did you and was it enough at that point for you to be able to come up with a, a, a plan that could make the course into what it really should be and what it probably once was? Well, first of all, Old Elm is really pretty blessed um they're one of the few old clubs that you run into that didn't have a clubhouse fire um yeah. you know where they that's they a big deal their, yeah it's huge um you know they didn't lose their archives and so all the original layout plans are there they're intact uh all of uh harry colt's sketches and and written descriptions of the holes they're all intact uh, and available. They even have still photographs of, uh, uh, of many of the holes while they were being grown in. They're not great photos, but Hey, they're, they're, they do show something here and there. So, I mean, 
I have to say their resources were really pretty strong. And that really was the impetus for the club to say, okay, this is, this is who we are folks. Um, not only are we, um, uniquely set up here as a, as, as a distinctive golf club, but we had two of the best golf course architects of all time on our property to build this golf course in Harry Colt and Donald Ross. And don't, don't you mean Douglas Ross? <laughs> <laughs> As it is written, yes, <laughs> by, by Mr. Colt. That's right. Um, but gosh, I mean, we would have killed to be in the room while those two guys were we're figuring this all out. And, uh, but it, it really did serve as our guide as we, we got going with the work at old Elm and the club already knew what they had. They knew the direction they wanted to go. Um, they hired Curtis James as their golf course superintendent of a gentleman that I've worked closely with over the, over years prior Mm-hmm. So we are, we already had a good working relationship. And then Kevin Marion, who's the general manager there, he's uh, so locked into architecture and history and, you know, so passionate about Old Elm. Uh, you know, they were already out of the gate. They already kind of had a, a, a plan in their minds about how they would like to to uh, get this this piece of ground back in the shape that, that Colt would have left it. And so that was a lot of fun. I mean, that doesn't come around very often to have a club like that and to have the resources that we had. Now, was there enough on the the paper and through photographs to understand kind of where Colt was coming from? Or, or do you take it upon yourself to study other Colt courses that, and try to work backwards into, into his mind? Well, you do a little bit of both. Um, in in the sense of old elm yeah they they have quite a bit of detail and when you actually get a hand drawn sketch and and handwritten notes about his intentions on a whole by whole basis and describing the bunkers describing you know the the way the fairway lies on the ground and the t angles and everything it, it you get a really strong sense of of what he intended um but at the same time, I mean, I, I went and uh, took a trip to England and went to Swinley Forest and St. George's Hill, and y- you could see y- you could see his philosophy and and his treatments slightly repeated. You know, you could see his tendencies uh, shine through, and you can do that with a lot of of architects. I, I've done that with Willie Park and done a little bit with you know, William Flynn and, um, there, there are tendencies and you can find them, you can look for them. Um, but, uh, at old Elm, the directions were really pretty solid, pretty clear. The only, the only thing that was a, a, a kind of a, uh, a different, uh, distinction there was the fact that, you know, Colt laid the golf course out wrote out all of his preferences and his directions, reviewed it with Ross, but then he left. And so carrying out the design was strictly the responsibility of Donald Ross. Mm-hmm. Um, so his interpretation of, of the plan is 
pretty accurate. And if you look at the bunkering, you look at the layout of the fairways and everything, it, it's pretty spot on. The real difference comes in the green surfaces, you know, and, and there's there would be a written description of a green that is supposed to have a flare up in the back corner, for example. Well, Ross took it upon himself to do the opposite and roll off, you know, and, and so that's where it, it seems like Ross had his influence and, and put his mark on on Old Elm. Mm-hmm. Um, but you got to have to look for those those little details and 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 study for them. And um, but it whether it's Ross or whether it's Colt that that had their influence in certain parts of that golf course, you can't argue it's it, it's a great work of of art and a and a great piece of ground to play golf on. Yeah, it would almost be a shame if Ross didn't take a, a few liberties here and there because otherwise he's just a construction foreman and you know but he's <laughs> right. one of the most brilliant architects ever so you kind of want to see see his his riffing here and there absolutely yeah. absolutely and you know what old elm i think for the longest time kind of fashioned themselves more as a ross design mm-hmm. you know that that was kind of how they uh they labeled themselves but you know through the efforts of of Kevin Marion and and uh, and and Curtis, you know they they dug up some of these resources and realized, oh my gosh, these notes, uh, the, these sketches, this this are all from the hand of Colt. These are not from the hand of Ross, and that really forced them to do their own due diligence to dig dig more into the matter and get to know it, get to understand it. And by the time I got involved they they pretty much knew where they wanted to go yeah and then it was a matter then of putting together our team to to execute that work it just it's another example of of the changing nature of golf design and our understanding of it is i think that says a lot through probably through the 40s 50s 60s 70s 80s donald ross was one of the few old quote-unquote old designers that almost everybody knew about and he was uh, you know everybody knew Seminole and, and Pinehurst and some of his great courses Oakland Hills so he was one of the few old guys that was still revered so he was probably like a hundred percent more popular and noble than uh, Harry Colt was you know because <laughs> sure. think about in 19 you know 80 did anybody who hadn't come you know lived in london or england or you know just in the average american guy who liked to play golf did he even know who colt was and that might have right. extended to the old elm membership too and then lo and behold they they have a colt course and now in you know in the 2000s when harry colt is venerated you know almost you know to a higher degree than donald ross is in some circles you discover that yeah. you've got a harry colt course and one of the only you know the few colt courses in north america that's that's like a treasure that's that's like discovering a diamond absolutely absolutely yeah you consider that you know you can count the the colt designs really in north america on one hand and you know it's just the opposite over in in europe and in the uk it's kind of like the flip of Ross and, and Colt in, in terms of yeah. which continent they, they worked on. And, and so I think that makes Old Elm that much more special for sure. And, um, you know, they totally appreciate it there. They're, it's a treasure and just so, so darn lucky to, to be a part of that effort. So this, you know, we, we're in this age of, of discovery and rediscovery. And a lot of the, the golf courses that you 
are are working with and, and prospective uh, relationships with golf courses, it must be thrilling for you because you're a lot of these places you're going to are. I'll back up for a second and say, you know, I think we all kind of recognize that most of the quote unquote top 100 old, you know, historic courses have probably been restored to some degree and they have, they're working with consulting architects and, you know, there, there aren't too many, you know, prestigious properties that haven't been, you know, uh, recognized and touched already. But now there's this other tier kind of below that. That you know, the, their pedigrees are also great. You know, these are courses like you mentioned, Willie Park and, and Donald Ross, and you're discovering these courses. You, in particular, like if you go around, you're seeing these properties that they're old, but you're discovering them kind of anew, and they do need a lot of work, and they have so much buried potential that that you can work with. That's got to be thrilling. And now that you're in this age of information, you know, you have the resources. And I don't now I mean talking to you, everybody. You have the resources to really do good work and discover uh, how you should approach a restoration or revitalization project. You also right. get to maybe do some work on a, somebody who's unknown, like like Harry Sneed or Smead. <laughs> what do you know about him? Because you're working with um, uh, Pine Hills in Sheboygan, Wisconsin now, which is a early 20s Harry Smead course. What can you tell right, us about him? Right. Well, I had to do my own digging there. Who the heck is Harry Smead? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, um, and I think he only did, you know, a handful of golf courses in his career. He was a little bit more of a construction foreman. Uh, and he did have some ties to Langford and Moreau, I do believe. Um, but, yeah, Pine Hills is one of those golf courses. If, if you didn't know about it, you're not going to know about it. You know, it, it, it kind of jumps out. Uh, as a big surprise when you go see it for the first time. And I was right there in that group. I, you know, when they contacted me, I, I really only was familiar uh, with the name because that's where uh, they host the We Won uh, event. Uh, the golf course superintendents that, you know, they, they have a, a huge fundraising event there every year. That's the only reason I knew the name. Mm-hmm. But to go see it, and you realize, oh my gosh, this is uh, like the the second coming of Lawsonia, um, and in some ways, it's it's even more dramatic. The green surfaces will, will just blow your mind. Um, it's such a good golf course, and yeah, I'm delighted to be working with them. And you know, nothing nothing is going to be major there. It, it's already very very good, but. Uh, the club hired me to to work with them to kind of guide it, you know, into the future and to make, you know, smaller, more precise adjustments to to make it continue to to improve over time um, as it continues to evolve. And I'm really excited about that. Such a special golf course. I, I still don't know anything about Harry Smead to. To, to put your finger on um you know he did a couple of golf courses in in indiana i believe or one in chicago area and another one in indiana and i don't know there might be another one but um there's not a whole lot to learn there uh unfortunately he just doesn't have a, a solid stable of work to go and and study do you do you know or do you just surmise that those putting surfaces are original or, I mean, is that a, maybe that's a, sne- a Smead characteristics to make really bold contours? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't really know. I just know they're really good. They're really special. And, and when you set foot on them, you, you have this sense that, 
you know, holy cow, we don't want to goof with these. These are really, really good. And, um, you know, whether that was Smead or whether there's been some influence over time, sure. I mean, there's evolutionary things that happen with maintenance and accumulation of material, um, you know, in the profile. But I think for the most part, they're, they're pretty pure. I mean, they've never been constructed in any uh, modern uh, uh, technique. This is all old push-up material. And so one has to think that they've always been there. So that will be uh, the number one, one of the top keys for you is just to enhance those and and keep those true to character, I assume? Yeah, and really not so much the greens. I mean, we'll be looking to recapture a little bit of uh, cupping area here and there. Um, But the greens aren't really going to be much of a focus because they're already so good. Mm -hmm. It's, it's more getting the bunkering dialed in, which is a very simple style. It's almost a, you know, Langford, uh, Rainer type, you know, grass Grass face, flat flat bottom, flat floor, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that sort of approach. Um, you know, but, but working with the fairway lines, you know, getting the bunkering to be really defining strategically and visually and, and you know, make good use of the bunkering where we can. You know, they're, they're just like any other golf course where there's been influence over time and bunkers have been added for right or wrong purposes. Um, but we're going to we're going to study it hole by hole, element by element and challenge everything that we see and and make uh, good informed decisions about how each hole is treated uh, moving forward and and then how the entire golf course comes together uh, to to be enjoyed for another 30 40 years it's almost shocking how much good golf exists in wisconsin both modern and, and old oh it's crazy i mean here you are at pine hills and then you realize, gosh, Black Wolf Run is just right down the street. So is Whistling Straits. You're not far from West Bend, Sand Valley. You got all the golf courses around uh, Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's crazy. We're doing work at um, uh, Kenosha Country Club, right. which is certainly closer to the, the Illinois border. But, I mean, there's another sleeper golf course right there, uh, one of only two Ross designs in the state of Wisconsin. And that golf course has hardly been touched over time, with the exception of of tree plantings uh, along the sides of all the holes. Uh, all, all the features, all the contours are original. And it's just very fascinating now as we're you know pulling the trees away and opening the corridors back up and you see all the landforms that that ross created and the impact they have on you know the the strategic design of each hole and how the property was was sort of uh, uh developed uh for golf it, it's it's fascinating yeah. and uh also another exciting project to be a part of Compared to Ross and Tillinghast and McKinsey and Thomas, uh, designers like Willie Park are just now sort of coming into the consciousness, the learned consciousness. They're being studied a, a little bit greater depth. I think there are a lot of golf courses that maybe didn't, you know, we didn't realize were, were Park or understand what, what kind of 
association he had with them so he's kind of he's kind of like the the next level of of uh earning study and you were working with some some courses that were designed by willie park you mentioned a minute ago about uh, architects having tendencies if possible could you give us a quick like a thumbnail a, a willie park for dummies uh <laughs> about his tendencies and, and what you've noticed at least in, the, in your travels oh boy that's a toughie it is a toughie um, it's kind of one of those things, you know, it when you see it. Uh-huh. Um, but you know, I, I just went over to the UK, um, earlier this year and really for the sole purpose of, of studying park a little bit more in detail. And, you know, his work is certainly more prevalent over there than it, that it is here in the U S I think he's got about Oh, if memory serves me, about 40 golf courses here in the in North America. Mm-hmm. And and actually quite a concentration here in the Midwest where where I live. So I got access to them. The trouble is a lot of the golf courses he did here, they've been tweaked. They've been they've had influence over, you know, the last 80, 90 years. And so they don't quite look like, you know, the golf course that that he intended or the the design that he left. And that makes it a little bit tough to dial in on his tendencies. Um, but when I went over to the UK, um, you know, I spent a little bit of time at, at Sunningdale and, and which, you know, you can argue whether that was even a good example because Colt got involved there and things have changed over time. But I went to a, club called Burr Hill. And it was a eureka moment because as I'm going around that golf course, it has hardly been touched. And I could walk around and, and look at the greens, look at the contours, look at the bunkering, you know, look at the the layout of the holes. And I was immediately pulled back to a course here where I consult and actually it's 10 minutes away called sylvania country club and i could see all the tendencies that willie park had in the shapes of the greens in the contouring of the greens you know willie park was such a great putter and felt that so much of the game was all about putting and therefore he would design fairly defined contours in the greens uh, that had to be contended with and uh, he would also uh, lay out a green or, or design a green shape that, that that had an angle or a corner in it that was tough to access and, you know, was, was another yet more challenging issue to be dealt with. Um, I also went to Huntercombe over in, in um, uh, what is it? It's Oxfordshire, I believe. Uh, fascinating place. Uh, probably Willie Park Jr. in his most whimsical yeah. uh, uh, of moods. Um, and, and that was a golf course he really tinkered with and played around with, not unlike Ross did at yeah. Pinehurst. He owned two. it. He absolutely did. He spent a lot of time there. And it shows. I mean, he with, with all of his pits and, and um, you know, unusual contours around the greens, yet again, I saw little bits here and there specifically around greens that reminded me of Sylvania. And it just kind of drove home the, 
the, the some, some of the detailing that now I bring back here um, to Northwest Ohio, and as as we're able to get a little bit deeper into our work there, you know, the, these are things I'll be focusing on, and um, I look forward to that. It's fascinating those British architects that that came over and and did work here. It's just you can almost like trace the you know evolution of design, or it's like DNA, like birds migrating from one you know island to another and spreading their DNA along the way, and it takes roots <laughs> and manifests itself in a whole new in a whole new you know environment, taking on its own characteristics. But that's Willie Park. You know his his genes are being disseminated in Ohio now. That's right. Well, you know, someone, so many of these guys came over from the UK. Um, their sole purpose really was to, you know, build a career in golf and grow the game here. You know, most of these guys, they, they weren't all, all just architects. They were greenkeepers. They were uh, club makers. They were writers and teachers of the game. You know, they were so much more uh in terms of being able to take the entire game of golf with them and and promote it you know you you look at a guy like tom bendelo and and i mean he made a whole career of of just laying out golf courses and spreading the word of golf and and promoting this this um uh connection of people with the game of golf i mean Spalding sure made out well. Uh, you know, he was their spokesman, and he would go lay out the golf course, and then they would follow in behind and sell all the the uh, equipment and apparel uh, to all those who were going to take part in the game. And and that's really how the game got going. But it started with this sort of large handful of of golf course architects, if you will, uh, that had all these skills to to come over here and and um you know spread the word of of golf yeah it was like the concept of the all-knowing quote-unquote expert you know (laughs) now nowadays everything's so specialized you know you're a swing instructor that's what you do you don't know anything about golf design but you're right in that era they were the the pros professionals were just experts in everything club making teaching (laughs) laying out a golf course Yeah, uh, I'm glad that I don't have to follow in those footsteps because uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't need to be teaching anybody the game of golf. That's for sure. <laughs> well, one one of the big topics of our discussion today is is history. It's interesting. We'll, we'll look back on y- your period when you got into the business up until you uh, went out on your own in twenty. I think it was twenty ten. Right. As something of an interesting historical period as well, that that sort of signaled that recession two thousand eight two thousand nine in many ways signaled the end of an era as and that era was that of the architectural firm as we knew it then, where you would have somebody's na- somebody you know the proprietor his name was on the door and then a team of associates and a, a staff of employees behind it and and you came into that environment with our tales in the early nineties when. He was arguably the one of the you know top firms, design firms in the the world, probably. Um, what do you remember from from those early days? It was a new experience for you. It was it was your first golf design job. You walk, you know, you're in an office with people. What did the design world look to you like at that time? Well, I'll tell you one thing. It was so exciting, and I was so thirsty to get into the business. And I was lucky enough to get a shot. And 
that in and of itself was a huge deal. Mm -hmm. So getting to come and uh, move to Toledo and, and work for a fellow like Art Hills with his reputation and, you know, his, his exposure to projects all over the world, that was like a crowning moment. And I mean, I would have paid them to take the job. Um, and, and I think you'd hear a lot of other folks kind of, you know, resonate very similar type experiences around that time. But, um, you know, we hit it right after a, a small recession. I was hired in um, the first part of 1992, and we had come out of a very small recession, and there wasn't much hiring going on. But, you know, Hills was starting to get some movement, and um, they were doing some things, and they felt like, hey, we, do, we are going to need to grow the staff a little bit here in the next year or so. So I was lucky enough to get a spot and walked right into what would become one of the largest golf booms that our country's ever seen. Um, quite literally, the, the phone just rung off the hook. <laughs> you know, and, and every week was you saw new opportunities. And our staff grew uh, like crazy. You know, I, I was part of this this first wave, but, you know, a couple years later, we would, you know, add four or five more. And then the next year, we'd add two more. And the next thing you know, you've got a staff of, you know, 12, 15 guys. And, and you know, you're just chasing work all over the country um, and, and all over the world, as it would turn out, um, because of our exposure just kept growing and, and so did the opportunities. Um, much of that work, Derek was, and I know we've talked about this before, but you know, it was, it was real estate driven. It, it was, um, uh, for the large developer, um, trying to sell homes, sell memberships. Uh, you know, it, it was an exciting time. A lot of money was flowing and, a lot of activity activity happening all throughout the country and we were right in the middle of it and so were a lot of other architects and and certainly the larger firms um you know got the the lion's share of that work so how did it work it within the office how is how would it be decided who went where and looked at what property and how how often were you on site versus in the office what were the dynamics? Well, early on, you know, I, I had to, to kind of cut my way and learn too. I mean, I was, um, um, very green the first few years, but you, you've really got to learn quickly and you get thrown into the fire. You know, when art would come and sit down at your table and roll out a plan and say, this is what I want you to do. I mean, that was a big moment. And, you know, you're thinking, oh, my gosh, he's going to tab me. And, he, you know, you're booking tickets to fly off to wherever and meet with clients and stomp all over a site and, and start, you know, developing concepts. And it would just start just like that. And it would happen very quickly. Um, I, I don't know. A lot of my learning was probably 
you know, the process of, uh, of an 11th hour fire drill. Um, but you learned on the run and, um, you learned the hard way. Sometimes you'd make mistakes and you'd learn from them. You learn from the builders that you work with. You you'd work with the clients and and try and tune into the things that were important to them. And you did the best you could. But you know, one, once I got enough of that under my belt and got comfortable, it's just like anything. You you start to realize, hey, there's there's certain things I like here and certain things that I don't like. Um, or that I would change or do differently. And, you know, after you know, seven, eight, nine years of doing it this way, you realize, okay, I'm coming into my own. I've got thoughts of my own. I've got feelings of my own. I've got a way of dealing with clients. I've got a way of approaching the work. And it just starts to happen. And um, sometimes it doesn't always agree well with the ways of the firm, but you know, you find yourself developing as a professional, and uh, that certainly happened as well. I'm sure. How much independence did you have creatively? Surprisingly, quite a bit. Um, you know, again, not initially, but once you start managing projects, um, and, and, you know, within seven or eight years of working for art, you know, you start managing multiple projects. I can remember at times, you know, working on seven, eight, nine, ten projects at once um, and having to manage them. And quite literally, there's other guys in the office that are doing the same thing. So we kind of operated um, in our own little pods. Uh, we shared a lot of information together. And we would help one another, and we knew what each other were doing. But at the end of the day, the responsibilities of these projects would fall almost solely on the individual project manager. They had to keep it on time, had to keep the concepts you know, intact with the vision, with the client, um, keep everything on track, uh, and, and keep Mr. Hill's involved and and informed about what was going on if you think about it hey it, it, you know the office might have 20 active projects going on at one time you know art can't be there with his finger on every single one of them and so that was a bit of a curse but also a blessing if you look at it from the standpoint of the project manager hey it's an opportunity for me to have a little expression here it's a, it's an opportunity to to explore some ideas that i have and and to kind of grow um grow as my own professional and that certainly happened and and um you know that that was the beginning of of being able to express things on your own if I'm being honest, I have to tell you that the architecture that came out of your firm, Art Hills, uh, now Hills Forest Smith, I believe, has it, always confused me. I, I, I've always tried to look to discern patterns, and I, I've seen and played some courses that I'm very fond of and I think are, are really well done, and then there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of work that just doesn't doesn't make a lot of sense, and it, I don't just chalk it up to the fact that it's you know part of a housing development. It, you know, just bunker placement, the way the bunker shaping, the way the features kind of fit in the ground. And I was just wondering, was there ever a, um, 
is there such a thing as a Hills style or a house style for that firm? What, what were his philosophies or principles or, you know, what can you, what can, what was expected of you? Like when you were developing a plan with a client when he wasn't there? Well, very good question. And I don't know if I can answer it exactly. You know, I think we all had a, a fairly good sense of what art expected and what was important to him in terms of how a golf course lays out and is experienced and, and the kind of strategies that you build into golf holes and, and so on. I, I don't think it ever got to a point where it was formulaic, um, but it, at times perhaps it could border on that. And that was something I really sort of rejected. I, I, I couldn't design according to a formula uh, or, you know, we got to have one of these or two of those or, you know, th there's just, to me, there's no rules. And, um, uh, you know, I, I think we were allowed a certain amount of freedom to explore individually. But at the same time, we still had to bring it all in under the, the moniker of, of Art's name. And, and at times that, that was challenging. And when we were at our busiest, you know, we, we have four or five key guys that are responsible for the work. But then there was some trickle down to a few projects that, that even younger guys would have to manage. And there's probably a chance that some of them weren't as strong as they could have been. And, you know, whether Art was involved with them or uh, heavily or a little bit lightly, but that sort of thing that 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 could happen in any any large firm where you just kind of get all, a little off track mm -hmm. but the the higher profile jobs were always you know they they got their due and they were well done and and had a lot of eyes on them hills embraced the real estate development concept heartily i mean that was a that was a main yeah. a big that was the the component. I mean, that's what made the the business successful. And right. I I think what happens is also like in the eighties and nineties, there's not a lot of competition for design ideas. Everybody, a lot of the architecture is is in similar mold. Maybe it starts with Pete Dye and gets into Jack Nicholas and then gets into Arthur Hills. And um, it's not like today where design thoughts have evolved all the way back to the nineteen twenties in a way. You know, and yeah. I don't think that if you could take an Art Hills course that was built in 1992 and open it today, I don't think it would be successfully uh, received. So design ideas have right. changed. So a lot of it goes, what what he was building was just, that's what was being built in that era. Everybody was kind of doing similar things. You know, the fairways were a little more shrunken. You know, there wasn't as much of uh, maybe uh, height differentiation between greens and bunkers in certain on certain properties. But I think the takeaway is that that was indicative of the mindset of, of, of placing business and selling homes ahead of m making pure good golf, good golf holes, good golf properties. Is, is right. that fair if we're looking back historically on this period? Oh, I think it's very fair. Um, not only that, Derek, but you got to realize who your clients were, too. If you were playing the game and you were actively involved in, in being – a successful architect during that period you were involved with real estate in one form or another and at the end of the day they're calling your shot 
I mean, they know what they want. They think they know what they need. They've got a formula that works for how they uh, attract memberships and how they sell real estate. And they've got a time frame they want to do it in and a certain dollar figure that they've got to hit to make it all work. They, they know what they want and they know what they need. And by God, you're going to follow their program or you're, you're going to be out, <laughs> you know? And, and so there, there was a fair amount of that that we, we would experience. And, and we had a number of clients that would hire us because they knew what they were getting. And, you know, at one point in time, I forget who, who coined this, but it might have been John Strawn. I can't recall, but he said, Art Hills is the Volvo of golf course architecture, boxy, <laughs> but safe, you know, and, and it's okay. true. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's true because developers knew exactly what they were getting when they hired our firm. They knew that the golf course would be solid. It might not, you know, it, it might not be one of these golf courses that, uh, uh, wins a top award or, you know, is going to be revered for ever and ever, but they knew that it was going to meet the, the satisfaction of what their goals were and that art was going to be a good guy to work with. His staff was going to be, you know, good to work with and that things would be done on budget on time, very reliable. And that was part of what made, you know, the, the group so attractive during that, that period of time, because we could make, <laughs> we could make money for our, our clients. Mm -hmm. uh, we could give them a great chance to succeed. And that happened a lot. And that's why we had a lot of repeat clients. These developers would go from one site to the next, to the next, to the next. And, you know, we just got the call every time. If you're going to be in this game, you want to be successful. You want to have your business to be successful. And especially at an organization like Hills Forest, you have a staff of 15 people or so, and you've got to pay their salaries and provide health insurance and all that. So those those projects definitely do pay the bills. So it's just, I think we realize now, looking back and from in our wherever we are currently mentally and intellectually in golf design, we look back and say, well, that, there was too much money in the game. We, we were oh, chasing, sure. chasing money and, and golf was a secondary uh, concern. Um, it is interesting though, that if you look at the firm's development into the two thousands and, and when you were kind of coming into your own, as you put it there, the, the architecture often changed and kind of it seemed to keep pace with the things that were happening throughout the business, the courses become like, like old stone, for instance, it becomes a little bit more expansive. There's, there's a little more probably uh, strategic uh, in intrigue happening there. Uh, yeah. Another, another course uh, you built in Portugal. How do you say it? Oit Oitavas. That's pretty good. It's Oitavas dunes. Oitavas. Yeah. yeah. Um, I hate saying foreign words. I'm terrible at it, but, but you know, that was a, that was a, a really nice site, um, had, had upland sandy areas with, with sand dunes and, and all kinds of wonderful vegetation, great views over the ocean. Um, and that, that looks like a very 2000s era golf course built by people working at the, at the height of their ability. Um, so, so the, you you did and maybe you can take credit for some of this is kind of pulling the the firm and their design aesthetic and and their their thought processes into uh up to contemporary standards 
Well, and, and again, you're you're getting better because everyone around you is getting better too. And the clientele that we started to get were demanding that of us as well. You know, it, it went from the cookie cutter development golf course to something a little bit broader than that, something a little more dynamic than that. And the sites would naturally get a little bit better and the opportunity as, as architects to sort of express, express ourselves um, became more of an opportunity. And, you know, golf courses like a, a Newport National or an Old Stone right. or an Oitavish, yeah. those were, the, and, and there were many others, uh, some that were done by other folks in the firm that, um, you know, they were really solid impressions and uh, they were successful. Then they remain successful. Um, and then you have the golf courses that you did prior to that. Uh, that were more development golf and you know you can argue whether that was good for anybody at the time uh, especially golfers um, the brand of golf that that was produced um, <laughs> I mean I, here I am uh, 25 30 years down the line and uh, it's it's kind of ironic I have the opportunity to go back and revisit some of these golf courses golf courses that I helped bring out of the ground right that now it's like, you know, we need a different brand of golf here. The clientele has changed. The, the dynamic of, of what they demand and what they want to see has changed. Um, it's not developer-driven anymore. It is very member-centric. It's very private club-centric or whatever, now we have the chance to go back and dial those designs in, tweak them to to be more of the offering that, frankly, we wish we could have done the first time. But, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm getting a lot of satisfaction out of doing that. You know, I, I went back and I redid all 36 holes at Quail West in Naples. And that was a perfect example of, you know, when I went back and looked at the golf courses, I'm like, holy cow, you know, it's just all, all the forms and all, all the shots that are, you know, in the face of the golfer instead of laying out and welcoming the golfer. Exactly. You know, it, yeah. it, the golf co courses and the golf holes themselves were just too darn hard, and there weren't options available to them, and they were completely dictated by where the golf cart had to go and and having containment mounding all over the place and all, all these contrivances that really made the golf experience not too neat and now that a lot of those members they might be original from when the golf course opened to begin with maybe they're still there but they're 20 or 30 years older and they they need a golf course they can get out and enjoy. And so that's a lot of the work that, you know, we've been able to execute is while not giving the golf holes away, we're providing more opportunity for maybe the, the shorter hitter or the, 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 the less, uh, the, the less skilled player to find their way around and, and do so with, with a relative degree of enjoyment. And so, 
you know, it's it's kind of ironic that we've gotten a chance to go back and sweep back through and do these kinds of uh, projects. Yeah, yeah. Well, at least you get the chance to do that. You know, that <laughs> no doubt. Keep it clean up, clean up uh, behind you. Um, that's a bad way to put it. Sorry. Right, I, always, yeah. I always think like there's the the cutoff point between this era, the golf boom era that we're, we've been talking about. You know, the '80s, '70s, '80s, and '90s, and whatever you want to call our current period, I like to call it like neoclassical naturalism, but, and the cutoff is containment mounting. You just mentioned it, but at some (laughs) point, you know, you can, you can look back and, and you don't see containment mounting being built anymore, you know, but it was at some point it, um, it just stopped being built. And at the point before that it existed on almost every golf course everywhere, you know, down the sides of the fairways and behind the greens and, um, it's a telltale sign. Um, just one last thought on, on this topic. To, to me, the, the the biggest problem with the housing development concept and, and the, the 20 or 30 years that that was the prevalent money-making model in golf isn't necessarily that the, the architecture is bad. It's more that the routings are so disrupted. And it really, yeah. uh, just over a course of a generation or two, really, I think it did a lot of damage in, in the psyche of the American golfer in presenting what golf could be at its best and most enjoyable which is you know an efficient nice walk you know walking sport that kind of thing but by necessitating a cart it it just removed us so far away from that i sense in some ways that uh, the housing development course may be starting to wake up that model may be starting to come back a little bit there's a few examples of it popping up here and there right in addition to that what are some of the lessons that we need to take forward if 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 development courses are going to uh, become uh, a thing again? That's a great question. Um, It might be better to pose that question to the developer um, because at the end of the day, they're going to have the final say in what goes on the ground and, and, and what it's going to be. But certainly as an architect, we've got the responsibility to try and deliver the best golf experience that we possibly can. And we inherently know that, you know, having those individual whole corridors and and envelopes that are all separated by homes and roads and that circuitous golf cart ride that that's necessitated by the way the golf course is laid out again, to maximize real estate and to sell the homes and to get the dollar you know, it, it would be really refreshing to have a, you know, a different concept, a different look at what development golf can look like. Um, whereas more shared whole corridors and, and almost a, a portion of core golf within the development so that the brand of golf experience can be integrated a lot better um, so that we can walk it. Granted, Florida is a toughie uh, when we talk about development golf because it's it's usually um, an you know an an aging golfer uh, or retiree. Um, it's hot as blazes down there. I, I think if we have visions that they're going to walk, you know, we, we might be fooling ourselves. Although there are golf courses where people walk down there. Don't get me wrong. I, I just think it's. That's, that's a tough habit to break. But to at least have holes that are connective and, you know, the experience is more on a, on a hole rather than, 
you know, these these individual sausages that are all sort of broken up <laughs> a, a landscape, you know, it, yeah. it's uh, that that's something we're, we never were very proud of. Um, and, and every time you break these corridors up, uh, then you had to you had to contain them. You had to build up around them and protect them and block views and all that nasty stuff that comes with. So, yeah, it, it, it'd be nice to learn from what we've done in the past and, and be able to, you know, work with a developer that, that valued some of these, some of these needs and some of these, um, golf experience values, uh, and realize that, yeah, you're going to give up some dollars, but maybe we make up for it in the dollars you make from providing the better golf experience. You know, it, it's, you can be different. You can separate yourself in another way but those would be things that i would like to you know be able to promote and not only that is it's the architecture uh itself and I, whether this would happen in florida probably not but you know i've always wanted to do a golf course that didn't have you know any of the influences of trees didn't have sand didn't have water didn't have rough I would love to be able to present a golf course that was nothing more than contour and, and appreciate what contour can do. You know, if, if we're all paying attention and watching Royal Melbourne over the weekend, I mean, you saw it, uh, that that's what happens when you've got contour and it's, prepared the right way and it's and a golf hole is laid out the right way to take advantage of it i i just like to see more of that more of the ground game less of the artifice um that so many uh of of, of our golfers have have come to rely upon in the way they determine whether a golf course is worth its salt or not you know there, there are no rules and i just like to see in a more open mind yeah i would love to see that i would love to see you be able to get the chance to to build that golf course and i think once a course like that was built and you had people going around it and playing it light bulbs would go off i mean they would see this is fun this is another this is so right. much more enjoyable than me trying to hit over the bunker or cut across that marsh and you know and i'm not getting frustrated it's i'm switched on you know i can use all these different clubs people would i, I it's a slam dunk slam dunk concept if anybody could uh, if any developer wants to try to do that well i'm soliciting for investors let's do that openly right now let's do it we, making we a call right now call to action <laughs> Well, it just never fails, you know, I, in all this renovation work that I do, you know, you get in these conversations with um, committee members and, and leaders at clubs and, and you know, you, you talk about taking trees out um, and, and opening corridors up and making their grass better and giving them more variety and options off the tee and, and, and all that that comes with you know, taking the, taking the trees out I, or removing bunkers for that matter. Um, you know, and it never fails. They come out and they say, Oh, we're really not crazy about that. Drew. You know, we're afraid you're going to make the holes too easy. And I, I just look at them like you've lost your mind. First of all, I don't know of 
there, there's a hole in existence that is too easy. You know, at the end of the day, we got to get it in the hole. And so there's so many ways that a hole can defend itself without the nuisance of trees or being over bunkered or having too much deep grass and so on and so forth. I mean, a, a golf hole can very easily defend itself if the fairway rolls over the ground in the right manner and it has the right shape on the ground. Um, a green angle that is set at just the, the right position so that access into the green is, is, is a challenge. And then you've still got to roll the ball in the hole. So, so uh, you know, I, I always kind of scoff when somebody says, Oh, you're going to make the holes too easy, you know, and you, you kind of want to ask, well, what's your handicap, sir? Exactly. And, you know, I don't see anybody breaking par out here. So you still got work to do. I'm just trying to help you have a better yeah, that's, time. It's so funny because, you know, yeah, you might hear that from a, a 16 handicap guy and, and you're, you're thinking, well, okay, you normally shoot 90. What, don't you want to, you know, if it is easier, don't you want to shoot an 84? I mean, wouldn't that be more exciting for you and, and fun? No doubt. No doubt. And usually those are the same guys that want you to make the holes longer too, you know, and um, I, I, I find that as, as we look at golf courses that we're about to renovate, you know, one of the first things I do is I look at the scorecard and I, I kind of study the, the lengths of the holes and the overall course length. And I can, I can usually dial into a few things right out of the, out of the gate. And, um, one of the things I see a lot of is an absence of short holes. And, you know, it's just through time, a lot of the short holes might've been there originally, but they've been lengthened for this, first to get to 7,000 yards or whatever it is, make the holes more challenging for the better player. But the golf courses have lost their personality, lost their character, lost their balance because the short holes have been lengthened, you know, and you'll hear folks talk about, well, you know, we don't have the short par three anymore. The hundred yard, 110 yard, 120 yard par three, I mean, we just don't have very many of them. Um, I know we couldn't afford to have those holes on the scorecard when we were developing new courses uh, back in the 90s because it, it just it hurt the scorecard too much. You know, we, we got to get to 7,000 or 7,300 or whatever. And if you got a 120-yard hole, <laughs> well, it throws, yeah, that changes the math everywhere else. Yeah, yeah, but if you look at Royal Melbourne um, from the weekend, for example, I mean, we had short holes. There were short holes that, that those guys were having to play. And did they hold their own? I, I think they did. The longest par three, I believe, was, what is it, 188 yards? And, uh, you know, you had a, a hole that went down to 140-some-odd yards, and and you had a par four on each of the nines that played around 300 yards. I mean, that that's the kind of balance and the kind of intrigue we want to promote. But if you're thirsty for a length and you're on a landlocked golf course, gosh, I really hate to see you put a back tee or, or a couple of back tees on a hole that's 325 yards to make it 
350, right. 360, because yeah. now we've got nothing. Now we've got this tweener hole that has nothing going on and has no strategic uh, sense at all. So, you know. It's really in the hands of the developers right now. You mentioned this uh, earlier because I think amongst architects, uh, at least, you know, the, the ones that are really passionate, thinking about it and, and caring about about what they do and the land, there's a there would be a push to make golf courses shorter, not longer. You know, we spent we spent decades trying to get them, like you just said, up to 7,000 yards, now 7,500 yards. I, I think if left to your own devices, you and your cohorts would would be, build courses that are 6,500 yards or 64, you know, and, and forget about, you know, championship tee boxes it's going to take a long time for developers to catch up to that or clubs you know uh, clubs i think are, are still you know want to cater to that potential tournament that they might get or or you know the the scratch player the plus player that comes through now and again they want to be able to serve him up a 7400 yard course but architects i know would would much rather push for shorter courses well i tell I tell all my clients this, and, and you know, I've, I've gone over to England and done a, a good bit of studying the, the past four or five years. And, and when I came back this past March from a quick trip, I spent five days, and I saw 10 courses in five days. All of them were in the Great Britain, Ireland top 100. So right off the bat, you know they're really good golf courses. They're very well thought of. They've stood the test of time. Everybody recognizes them. So that let's get that out of the way. But here, the average back tee length for all 10 of those golf courses was just over 6,300 yards. And not only that, I think there was only, only five of the golf courses were a par 70 or over. And we could walk every one of them. You could walk your dog with you, and you play it in three and a half hours or less, or you're you're going to get a, a free ticket to leave. And <laughs> right. you know, I just how, how is that not I'm a replicable model? That. Right, right. It, it it just seems like, gosh, why can't we do that at home? Why can't that be embraced? And I yeah, think, think we all know who, the reasons. Who but, wouldn't respond to that? Right. I mean, you, there are people who don't want that, but like, what percentage do they account for? Like, it's a minority. Most people would would be all over that if if they had if they could have that. Right, right. Well, and and certainly today, if you get on social media, I mean, the majority of folks that are posting, this is the brand of golf that they're looking for. And you know, say what you want about the enthusiasts on on the internet. Um, They've got all their opinions, and they're going to spout them off all the time. Uh, but you have to appreciate that social media is exposing these ideas, and a lot of these enthusiasts are at the forefront of that. They're saying how how nice it is to walk, how important it is to walk, and how length is not a, as big a deal as everybody makes it into. And And they are saying a lot of the right things about architecture that – it does make sense and and that should be valued more by by golfers and recognized more by golfers um because i think you know there's so many times when i'm standing on site and i'll be in a discussion with the client or a builder or whatever and we're getting ready to make a change and and i'll say you know 
am I making this change for me or am I making it for the player? And if I make this change, will the player even recognize it? Will they even know it? And, and so there's a lot of that that goes on where, you know, some of the things that are important to us as architects, uh, you know, to do good work and to provide these options and these different looks and different nuances, a lot of times they'll never be appreciated by those who play. Uh, I hate to say that because I wish they, you know, it, it was a more cerebral sort of uh, impact on players, but you know, so many times it's, it's just not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I, I wish that was not the case. I wish folks really would dial in and study what they're, what they're experiencing and asking questions of themselves. You know, what kind of shot am I supposed to hit here? What's the result? If I do this, then what? And if I do that, then what? You know, what's, and, and they really understood the nuances of design and what the architect's acts asking you to do. And there's plenty of folks that are doing that, but it'd be neat if there were more. There's definitely, to your point, there's definitely, I sense, and I don't know, I I can't quantify it in in meaningful numbers, but there is a a curiosity for these types of golf experiences, the walking, the connectivity, the social aspect, the studying the architecture, trying to analyze it or enjoy it uh, in a meaningful way. Uh, So, and that, I don't think that that existed or wasn't able, we weren't able to communicate that the way we do now. We weren't able to do that, you know, the, right. 10 years ago or even five years ago. And now hopefully that, that adds up to something, you know, hopefully that there's enough movement and enough heat that going back to a developer or an investor, somebody that, that can realize that there's a market for, for thoughtful, meaningful, soulful golf. Well, Mike Kaiser's the guy, I mean, he gets it. And well, sure. You know, you look at what he did at at Bandon Dunes, and there were probably plenty of folks that thought he was out of his mind for going to the Oregon coast out in the middle of nowhere to build, you know, initially a course, and um, who knew it was going to turn into what what it is today. And yet now that has become so defining in terms of, you know, this golf experience that you can you know, you, you can take this pilgrimage to go there and, and you're on this campus and you play, you know, four or five golf courses and stay under one roof and hang with your buddies for, you know, for three or four days and just get completely immersed. And that is so cool. And then he goes off and does it at Sand Valley and, mm-hmm. and we see stream song and we're seeing that kind of experience repeat itself. And, it's really good for golf. I think it's good. It's good for folks to get that experience without having to take the trek overseas. Cause we know we're going to get it over there. They've perfected it. It's been there forever. Um, and, and we try to bring that home and, and create influence here. But, you know, Mike has really done it. And the expressions that he's created with his golf courses at these resorts, is nothing short of remarkable. Uh, I hope I'm, the next, I'm a big fan. I, yeah, of, of course. I hope the next phase is that you just said we don't have to make the trek overseas. I hope the next phase is to get that style of golf. We don't have to make the trek to the Oregon coast or to Nova Scotia. <laughs> we can make the trek, you know, down the street. Uh, but well, that's and, and that's where we need smart money for 
you know, so many public daily fee golf course experiences. What I see is, is the architecture of a lot of these golf courses is really suffering. You know, they're really bland experiences. Yeah. They're laid out by a mom and pop or no name or they just didn't have the means to do something. And, and I get that, look, the cost of maintenance holds those facilities back. Let's get beyond that. That doesn't mean you can't have good architecture. You know, it doesn't mean you can't have intriguing, thoughtful shot making opportunities that that are influenced by where a gol- where a uh, a bunker is placed or the way a, a a fairway is aligned and and so on i i think that that's kind of a missing piece in in what we we can experience as just everyday golfers i, I would like to see the public daily fee experience you know be enhanced architecturally and it'd be so simple to do it it just it takes an open mind to do it and and a little bit of resources but um i'd love to see that happen that's well put let's start to wrap this up drew one of the things that that has tickled me is is going on your website so the website is jdrewrogers.com and you can learn more about drew uh look at his uh some of the courses and places he's been your blog is terrific. I've been spending some time just reading through your posts. You're very honest and candid about your, your thoughts and opinions on different places in your travels. But one of the things that was the most enjoyable was your uh, series from a couple of years ago called McKenzie Meets Augusta. And you envision, oh uh, <laughs> you envision Alistair McKenzie coming back in modern day America and you're giving him a tour and he's seen some of his, his previous work and, and he ends up at Augusta. And Hootie Johnson is there to give him a tour of the golf course. And it's just, it's, it's funny and it's fascinating. And you can, we can all imagine like what McKinsey would think if he were to go see Augusta National now. And it's, you, you, you illustrate sort of the absurdity of the decision-making that has often uh, occurred at Augusta National. And in fairness, they, they've always had this tension between the original course, McKenzie's vision, Bobby Jones's vision, what originally opened, and then the runaway success of the Masters and what that hosting that tournament demands. Sure. Um, what would you do to Augusta if, if if they called you and said, Drew, what do you recommend we do? Is is it possible to reconcile those, those two different elements? Oh boy, that's a good one. You put me on the spot because here I got I got to have a little fun and and poke at Augusta a little bit, albeit through a dead McKenzie role. But um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I just I see the way that golf course has evolved, and, and I just kind of question the validity of the way it all happened. You know, it 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 just it so caters to the long hitter and we've lost a lot of nuance. We've lost a lot of width. We've lost a lot of the way the ground works. We've taken some absolutely stunning greens completely out of play. Um, I, I don't know. It, 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 it's more of a question to ask than a, a directive to, to give really. It, it's just what, what if we had left it alone? What if we'd have been a little bit less, hands-on and, and a, a, a little bit more um, preservative in the way that we looked at the golf course. Because you look at who was involved, well, they 
clearly knew what they were doing. You got McKenzie and Jones, and and they put a lot of thought into why those holes were arranged the way they were and the nuances hole by hole and shot by shot that were evoked in the architecture. I, I, I just kind of leave my, I, I just kind of scratch my head sometimes looking at what we see today and why, why, why are we planting trees? Why are we introducing rough? Why, why are we doing this? And, and I could say that about other golf courses. I mean, I could go to Medina and say the same thing. And, you know, it, it's one thing to sit where I sit and, and to make comments about it. It's another thing to be in the room where the decisions are made and know what's really at play and, and, and all that. And I get that. And I respect that. Um, but when I pull myself back and I kind of look at what has happened or what's transpired over time, you know, it's just like, why, why, why did we do this? And it's more of a question, you know, and I kind of had fun with the blog and, um, it was just a, an opportunity to kind of, uh, put myself in, in that seat and as if you were McKinsey and that way it didn't have to be me, Derek. So the, it took the, a little pressure The funny off. thing is, is when I'm, I've gone back, you know, I'm thinking about it and I'm thinking about the seventh green and, and how Maxwell changed that. And in my mind, I'm saying, oh, well, and then McKinsey said this, and it's really, you wrote, what, but you wrote it, right, but I'm right, like, oh, right. well, McKinsey said that, that, you know, why did Maxwell move that green? He, he wouldn't do that. He did really. <laughs> so you right, made, right. you've made it come alive. It's, um, everybody should go read that McKinsey meets Augusta. And it does, it does point out the, I always I think that it was impossible to keep the original McKinsey course if you're going to host the Masters tournament. I, I don't think they I don't know that it was compatible. But there was a version of Augusta probably in in the 1950s or maybe even in the early 60s that was sort maybe that maybe that was kind of an ideal expression. It hadn't been altered out of all character. It, it still you know it was the 19. 19- 37 version of the golf course still basically right but it was still right. wide open and the greens you know were as fast as they could get them and it, it was a really nice expression and it, it reminds me of a i think nicholas said this a year or two ago that he would he would just explain to um i guess it was billy Payne about the rough and how mckenzie wanted the ball to you know the, to move around on the ground and and he said that billy Payne like they had no idea what he was talking about so it is possible that, that you know like any club but they can sort of lose their direction they can get caught up so caught up in one thing that they that they lose sight of of something else that's in, intrinsic to the nature of their golf course yeah even a place like augusta which you would think that wouldn't happen, but uh, you know, yeah. There's, I mean, it's, there's and, never been a better documented golf course at how it's aged year to year, and it, it's baffling to think that the membership <laughs> would not, uh, you know, have that on their minds all the time. Right, right. Well, th- again, the blog. I hope everyone who who does read it, it realizes it was just for fun. But th- there's some salient points in there, and the, more than anything, it, it was really intended to just get people to think. You know, it, it's not to take shots at Augusta or anybody not. else, but uh, no. But it captures a, a, a very popular sentiment when the people who are love architecture. You know, every April we're reminded once again of of how you know how far that course has changed and how much it has evolved. And we, every, a lot of people have those same sentiments. <laughs> well, uh, may, maybe someday we'll get to vocalize those a little more poignantly. But, you know, at this point in time, they are who they are. They're going to be who they're going to be. And uh, it's just fun 
fun to have thoughts about it. It was and, fun. Um, that it, it inspires us a little bit. So that's that's the good that can come. I hope. Yeah. All right. What is the uh, what's your favorite modern golf course that you had no part in designing or building? Oh man. Um, modern right modern mm-hmm. oh yeah because if i just say favorite golf course everybody will say pine valley or cypress or seminole or something you know what i'd have to throw this one out and and gosh it, it's hard to pick one of anything and say that's the one or that's it but i've always been really inspired by bandon trails mm. yeah and, and when i go out there and i play those golf courses you know, and they're all so great and, and they're so dynamic and so well done. But Bandon Trails always seems to capture my curiosity and intrigue just a little bit more. And I think it's because the site that that golf course was built on. And I actually had the chance to to tour that site before they did that work. So I knew what, what kind of a bear that site was. It was full of wetlands and bogs and all kinds of challenging terrain and vegetation and the disconnect with the ocean and the disconnect from the resort. You know, it, it was just like, oh, my gosh, how, how, are, how are they going to overcome all this? But I think it's one of the best works that Core Crenshaw ever put on the ground. I really do it's got so much going on and it's so well done and it's such a great use of that ground that was very, very difficult to work with. Yeah. Um, you know, take nothing away from, from Doak or kid. They've got the, the sand dunes out, you know, out by the water and that's lovely. You could cut those any different way and produce something really great. And they certainly both did. Um, and the same with old McDonald and, but I just think as a pure piece of architecture and, you know, the thought that had to be put into the rooting in the arrangement and the way that all came together, I appreciate that. And I think it therefore is one of the, one of the best experiences anywhere. Uh, and I, you know, I play, I like places like tobacco road I've always had a soft spot for Harbor Town, mm-hmm. um, and then I got a whole bunch of oldies that I that I love dearly. But uh, I don't know that that Bandon Trails that one sticks. That that's got all the qualities that I think are so vital to what we're trying to do. Uh, my friend Tom Dunn, the writer who the publisher of McKellar Magazine, mentioned Bandon Trails as his favorite as well. And I like the way he put it. He said it, it's a great piece of storytelling. And it's a nice way to think about how do they, how an architect can use a piece of land and to tell a story. And, and it really resonated with me. I thought that was a beautiful way to put it because it does sort of, you know, you start off here and you go on this journey and you're taken along and, and things change and, and there, are, there are peaks and valleys and then dramatic buildup and tension and then there's a release. And uh, it, to, your, to what you just said, yeah, I think that's a, that, that golf course really does do that. It just kind of takes you on this journey and, and, and unspools uh, your emotion, you know, and it's an emotional journey kind of as well. Hey, well, well put, um, both Mr. Dunn and yourself. <laughs> Those are great words to describe it. And, and I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's a journey, it's an experience and, 
and it's varied. It just, and at the same time, balanced. And that's what we're trying so hard to achieve every time we have the chance. And, and I just think, you know, my hat's off to those guys. They just did a wonderful job there. I love it. I love it. Never get tired of that place. We spend a little bit of time maybe a lot of time kind of uh, criticizing the, the 1990s and, and some of the work of, of Arthur Hills. And hopefully, hopefully it wasn't too harsh. Hopefully it was an honest assessment. But I, uh, let's turn it around a little bit. Yeah. What golf course, and this could be one that you worked on, what golf course would you like to see preserved or restored to it that you worked on that, that's under the Hills banner? Is there a golf course that you think that, that you'd like to see preserved going forward? restored or in 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 30 years you you hope that this is a it's still a a honest expression of of what you build boy that's a great question um i think more than anything and and maybe this is the artist that comes out in me and more than anything i there's golf courses i'd like to go back to and continue to work on Mm um i don't know if it's really realistic to say, well, I really want that golf course to remain untouched and preserved or restored or whatever. I, you know, I, I think golf courses, they have to evolve. They must evolve. And if we think that anything that we feel strongly about as good work is going to remain untouched and, and um, not have influence from others on into the future, we're kidding ourselves because they're all going to get touched. They're all going to be refined and they're going to continue on this evolution, just like every other golf course in the world. And there's one that's really soft in my heart that I would love to go and kind of continue the work. And that's the one in Portugal, the Oitavos Junes project. That is such a phenomenal site and, the bones of what we built there were so strong and desirable and, you know, inspiring. I think it's, it, I would love to go back and, and retune the detail and, and just make it better and just continue to, to take that golf course on its journey. Cause it's, it's got all the makings. It's got all the, all, all the right elements that make it one of those special places on earth. And for those reasons, you know, it, it's just like any artist, the, the work is never done. You know, you always go back and you think, well, what if I'd have done this? What if we'd have looked at this differently? And let's look at the way they play that hole now. Maybe if we tweak this, I mean, they're never done. They just aren't. And that for that reason, yeah, I, I'd like to go back and tweak things um, rather than restore them. I, um, I, I just think they're a constant work in progress. Is there a possibility that that might happen? I don't know. I don't know. Um, you know, maybe in the future. You know, there's there's strong personalities there, and um, you know, it, it it could be challenging in the near future, but. Uh, perhaps you know we, we won't lose sight of it and and we'll, we'll continue to keep the communications open and you know maybe it's not me maybe it's somebody else you know you never know how those things are going to shake down but i don't know there's a soft spot there for me and and 
you know, hopefully the relationship I have there will, will, will open up the opportunity and, and they'll have an open look at it themselves. But, uh, yeah, you know, it can be hard sometimes. I've got one and this, this was built before you joined the firm, but, and this would be a, a complete restoration because it's currently closed. And I don't even know if it's possible, but it's it's the dunes in uh, on the west coast near the west coast. It's near Worldwoods in oh, Brooksville, Florida. So the yeah. Seville site is pure sand. Um, some real real great shaping and artistry. There are big blowout sand features. Uh, right. A lot of really cool, fast, slopey greens. Um, just almost everything about that golf course was right for me. And then, it, but it was part of a, a real estate development that failed, and I think they're growing pine trees on the golf holes now or something is it's been gone for a while but that was a that was that really stood out in the hills portfolio of the things that i'm familiar with no you're absolutely right and you know it was funny i found myself on on um on a project down in florida i don't know i'd been working for art for 10 years or so and and i had always seen pictures in his office of this you know, sand blowout golf course. And I said, Art, where, where is that? He goes, Oh, that's the dunes in Seville. And, uh, you know, I said, well, I'm going to go see that sometime. So I had extra time before I caught my flight out of Tampa or whatever. And I thought, you know, I'm going to go over there. And so I did, and I actually had some time and it was 30 bucks play all day. And, (laughs) you know, but you get out there and, and you thought, God, I've been transported here. You know, this place is so cool and so pure, and these blowouts are just so, you know, perfectly placed and incorporated. It, it's it was really well done, crudely done, but it didn't matter. It it was kind it of all came together. It it, it, that's yeah. right. That's right. And it is sad that it's you know no longer operational and they've gone through their struggles there mostly due to real estate as you mentioned but um yeah that's a special yeah. property for <laughs> that sure was cool. yeah well drew let's cut that off now we've been going for quite a while it's such a, a fun conversation i enjoyed it thanks for taking uh, some of your valuable downtime out <laughs> to spend it with me i appreciate it well derek thanks so much i mean you do a great job with your feed the ball uh, podcasts and all the the guests and the the uh, topics that you cover, um, and I appreciate being part of the forum. So thanks for uh, thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, the honor is mine. I'm glad we got a chance to do it. You bet. All right, a lot of good stuff there from Mister Rogers. We spent a lot of time talking about Arthur Hills and and his legacy. It always cracks me up to remember that Pete Dye called him the Prince of Naples because for a long period of time in the 80s and 90s, Hills had almost a lockdown on the area in South Florida from Naples to Fort Myers built, you know, he must have built one or two dozen golf courses down there, including some we talked about uh, on this podcast, like Miramar Lakes and, and Quail West, plus all the courses at Bonita Bay or, or most of the courses at Bonita Bay. Um, and it's just uh, amazing that someone could go in and just dominate a region like that. And it reminds me of a period in time here in, in my market in Atlanta where Hills between, I think like 1986 and 1992 came and built five courses of pretty prominent courses at the time and put his stamp on this uh, market as well. A couple privates, a couple publics. We talk about the this housing area development and it's important to point out that it wasn't just Art Hills who was capitalizing on the housing development and real estate golf model. 
pretty much every architectural firm that was in operations in the 70s, 80s, and 90s was trying to take a bite out of that apple. Uh, that's just the way the, the business was, was done. That's where the money was. That's the way golf development and, and golf course design uh, was, was heading. But we're remiss if we don't look back on that era and give it some sort of a critique and, and realize that it did play a pretty significant part and had a significant influence in the way golf changed uh, over those decades. Whether it had to do with the cost of building golf courses, the way you had to present golf holes when they're when they abut a long string of homes, whether it's the ribbons of cart paths that were necessary because the holes were strung out through neighborhoods, taking people farther and farther away from that walking experience, whether it contributed to the overall perception of golf and how people viewed golf as something that existed behind gates and in upscale neighborhoods in, in many cases. And also the, the legacy left behind with certain development courses when uh, the social economic dynamics of a certain region city or city change and migrations happen and people move on and, and, and maybe uh, developments begin to struggle and suffer a little bit? And, and what becomes of those golf courses uh, when people begin to move away? All of these things have to be taken into context. And when we're looking at the story of golf architecture, and uh, it, it's really, um, it sounds like we're being critical, or it sounds like I'm being critical. I am to a certain degree, but it is part of the golf story. And, and we have to we have to look back on that with, with bright, clear eyes. And I think what I sense happening a little bit is, is a, a movement toward uh, the development course again. It's been a decade or more since that's really been a model in America, at least. And I'm a little concerned that when and if we begin to see that uh, real estate component and golf component marry again, that we're going to make the same mistakes. And we don't want to export the f- failed concepts in many ways from from decades past into what we're doing now. So I hope architects, for their part, can have a, a more assertive role in trying to make a case for a more holistic marriage between golf and living uh, in a way that didn't exist, uh, not nearly enough in the 1980s and 90s. I'd also be remiss if we didn't actually you know, give Art Hills some credit. A lot of people came through uh, his firm and have had very successful careers. He he was a mentor to a lot of people and and his company was a springboard for a lot of talent. Uh, going back, you know, Steve Forrest, his longtime partner who's still with the firm, uh, Mike Dasher in the eighties uh, did a lot of great work in in Florida and Georgia and in other states. Uh, Keith Foster, so talented now in the restoration business. He's uh, after his uh, problems, he's back and active now. Brian Yoder was doing great work. Chris Wyshynski is is out there doing great work now. Drew Rogers, of course. Uh, so a, a lot of great talent came through Arthur Hill. So so he deserves some credit for uh, producing some great careers and having the influence on the people that he did. Really excited to see where Drew Rogers is going the next few years. I know he's involved with a lot of classic courses in the Upper Midwest, as I said in the intro. Pine Hills, we talked about that. That has a chance of of being the next sort of, I guess, I don't know, social media or insider's favorite golf course, something along the lines of Lasonia or Aiken, although it's private 
in fact, it's if you haven't seen it, you should go on the show notes. I put a link to Andy Johnson's uh, profile on it from the fried egg from a year or so ago with some amazing photographs. Uh, he took some incredible images of the golf course, and you, it, it captures some of that movement in the in the terrain and the topography and the green complexes and the, the putting services that Drew was talking about. So Drew will get his hands on that to tweak it just a little bit. I don't think it needs too much. And it, it's, it's such an interesting golf course that uh, – my next podcast guest, who I will not divulge who that will be quite yet, but uh, brought that up independently as well. So that's so that's Pine Hills in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. We'll keep an eye on that. So once again, thanks to Drew Rogers. That was a, a fascinating, insightful conversation. What a great guy. Thanks to you all for listening. Go to TalkingGolf.com to keep up to date on the latest and greatest in golf podcasts, including the Good Good Podcast with myself and Adrian Logue and Rod Morey, State of the Game, a new episode of that dropped recently, Talking Golf History with Connor Lewis, and a number of other great podcasts on that network. That's TalkingGolf.com. You can find me at FeedTheBall on Twitter and Instagram. Drop me a line there. Give me a follow. I hope you all enjoyed this episode. We'll be back soon with another one. Thanks to the Sundogs, as always, and until we get a chance to do this again, adios.